So, here we are. Episode 2 of Grace and Danger. It's been quite a week since the now infamous Capitol riots. And first question, do you think that we got it right? Did we hit the nail on the head with our comments last week? Or would you need to revise anything that we said? I I don't think so. I mean, there's more information to come out. I feel pretty happy from what I've seen. I, I'm keeping an open mind that Trump didn't incite what happened, but what happened was bad. The The one thing that seems to be in doubt is who actually instigated it um, and who was involved. Were there other parties involved other than people who were present for the rally and there to hear Donald Trump for the right reasons initially? Uh but uh, I think uh, I'm pretty much of the same opinion. What happened was very bad, uh, trage- a tragedy for, for some of those involved, clearly. Uh, but I think it's uh, wrong to try and pin it down on Donald Trump. How, yeah. do, you, how do you feel? Go on, yeah. Uh, likewise, I think that there's a difference, first of all, between any sort of legal responsibility and potential uh, just responsibility. And I don't even necessarily think that uh, the president did anything wrong by calling people together that day in that fashion. I don't think it was intention to have it uh, go the way that it did. Uh, But even so, I think that what's been most revealing has been the, the overreaction and hypocrisy by people mm. who said nothing about the riots uh, over the summer, or if they did say something, they were tending to encourage them. And we covered all of that last week. Yes, I agree. Yeah, I, I, that ha- I haven't changed my opinion on that at all. There is a huge double standard from his critics here who didn't seem to be uh, as willing to condemn what went on over the summer, even in Washington, D.C. I mean, they burnt down the church opposite the the White House, I believe. Um, and uh, there wasn't the same condemnation. So, right. Um, and people died across the country. People died. There were, there were many, many personal tragedies, billions of dollars worth of damage, I think. So it wasn't as if it was a minor thing in comparison. It, it, it was... Uh, should we say, at least just as serious. Right. Well, we're moving forward and uh, trying to kind of define some more positive values in this show uh, rather than kind of defending. uh, And I I wanted to talk for one thing about uh, two different kinds of mentalities that we can have when we go about this kind of work. Um, and one I would call the, the siege mentality or mm-hmm. the victim mentality, where you feel like your enemies are uh, always surrounding you and that you're, you're under constant attack, uh, the sort of beleaguered um, perspective. And the other one, which I tend to favor, is the happy warrior, the happy warrior for freedom. That was a term that I think was used a lot to describe Milton Friedman, who was one of my uh, idols when I was when I was a young man. No, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> now, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I still think that Friedman is an excellent model of a certain persuasive style where whenever he was being countered or uh, attacked by people who uh, disagreed with him, he always smiled at them. He always uh, maintained a very civil tone and uh, just kind of put them in their place in this way that uh, I think is far more effective than uh, than the the reactive posture. Um, I'm wondering if you've kind of come across, you know, have you been uh, attacked or has anyone criticized or, or tried to uh, put you put you down uh, over these kinds of issues recently uh no it's it's funny when i what happens to me is that uh i'm not particularly good at thinking on my feet if i if i encounter a situation for the first time um and if somebody does uh say something to me i i might not handle it particularly well from the point of view of the logic and the the the, the way that i deal with it um but what I try and do is then remember that and think the next time this occurs, this is what I'm going to do. And then there's never a next time. I, I don't know. 
Uh, people rarely uh, cross me, and and I don't want to go out and just bring it up uh, I, with people without good reason. Um, but I, it's interesting that uh, I I hadn't thought about Milton Friedman in that way. But you're right. I just I've seen videos of him, and uh, that's exactly his manner. Um, I had a, a teacher, uh, Aidan Hart. Uh, this was slightly different. It wasn't really a hostile environment, but he was an orthodox iconographer, and I'm a, I was a Catholic attending his classes, and he he believes as a, as every good orthodox does that I'm a heretic, and uh, he just had a, an absolutely charming way of pointing out the differences, uh, that without it seeming nasty or personal, um, but he never ever backed down. Um, he would not, in the sense that um, he, he would uh, always stand up for what he felt was right, but did so in a in a cheerful and uh, self confident way that didn't undermine the dignity of the other person. So he's the model that I look to. Um, I think most uh, of the yeah. situations where we tend to encounter disagreement these days is on the internet. Uh, you know. People yell back and forth, whether usually it's in writing. I think we might treat each other differently if we were always sitting face to face like we are. And uh, that's one of the reasons that I want to facilitate more face to face conversations, mm -hmm. whether in person or virtually. But p get people talking to each other, even if they have disagreements, especially if they have disagreements. Uh, now we're entering a new era of censorship on social media since last week president trump has been banned from twitter and virtually all of the major social media platforms uh so without um backing down on that front um this is one way face-to-face -face podcasting conversations hopefully that we can kind of circumvent the the, the would-be censors Yes, and uh, I wonder if this is going to backfire on the people who are doing it. Um, it it'll be interesting to see what the broad perception is. Um, but I think your point about being able to do this cheerfully, and, and also when we talk amongst ourselves, it's not just when you're engaging with others, but mm. if, if it becomes a bitter remonstration, uh, there is a problem there, and um, I... I always try and remember when I get caught up in this that, that these aren't the most important things. The most important thing is my relationship with God. And in the end, nobody can touch that. Um, and so it's going to be okay. Um, sometimes I have to work at it pretty hard. I've got this process, the vision for you process, which enables me to deal with resentments and fears. And you know, that's one of the book that, books that you and I have published. Um, with a Pontifex Press and Way of Beauty Press, but um, it's it's what it's. I have to be careful. I have to say when I'm reading some of the things that people say um, and the nastiness that's involved, I could feel my gorge rising, and I and I have to work on not letting it affect me. But I think as a rule that the what you say is correct. We're not. We don't need to be victims. That's about a, a mentality, and uh, that is something that comes from the left. It's part of the the Marxist ideology is to actually identify people as victims and promote that sense of victimhood in them in order to promote strife and conflict. Um, and so, effectively, it's saying to the to certain groups of people, you should be feeling indignant about this, and it's right to be fired up and to be confrontational. And I think the Christian way of approaching things is to say, even in the face of justice, we, we don't uh, aim to uh, get into uh, violent conflict, shall we say, and, and real nastiness in, in regard to this. We, we stand up for ourselves and we have great personal dignity, but we're not seeking conflict, we're seeking resolution. Yeah, and in line with that, uh, last week we played the actual audio clip of the president's statement a couple hours after the, the Capitol riot had begun. 
And you could see clearly that he was trying to diffuse the conflict at that point, sending people home. Today, I got a text message. I think this was because at some point I signed up for for alerts. And now with uh, the president being purged from Twitter, that's just about the only way that we can hear from him. So his latest statement is, in light of reports of more demonstrations, I urge that there must be no violence, all caps, no lawbreaking and no vandalism of any kind. This is not what I stand for, and it is not what America stands for. I call on all Americans to help ease tensions and calm tempers. Thank you. And once again, I think that's in marked contrast to what we saw in regard to the response to what's happened over the summer in Portland and Seattle and other cities. He's very quick to condemn the violence. There was a poster advertising for these uh, demonstrations that are, I guess, being organized for the 17th, a couple of days from now. And it was sort of in the style of Soviet agitprop, or like it, it had the, the look of a Maoist poster or some sort of a, you know, the same fonts, the same color schemes and sort of stark black and red. Uh, and it made me wonder if that might be a continuation of some of the uh, infiltration that I do think occurred on Wednesday of last week. Not to say that it was the driving force necessarily, but I think that it certainly put uh, fuel on the fire and just just a few people in a large crowd can do a lot to foment uh, violent tendencies. You had, at, at least there were some clips that I saw where people were um, or where one person was starting to smash a window and the surrounding people, you know, pulled him off and, and made sure that uh, they they weren't uh, committing vandalism or property crimes, things like that. Uh, still, I think that people on my feeds have been divided in terms of whether they actually thought that the the overall act of, of storming into the Capitol was a good thing. There are some people who who are basically standing by it as a, uh, kind of uh, sending a strong message. And I'm not sure where I stand on that, but I think that uh, this statement couldn't be more clear. And I hope that people get the message and don't get fooled by the latest round of uh, agent provocateurs posing as patriots and organizing rallies that are intended to further undermine and discredit the outgoing president. Yeah, and uh, I'm clear in my own mind that whether... Uh, it was instigated by uh, some people who were at the, at the rally and supporting Trump or whether it, they were simply following some uh, others who uh, were goading them on. Uh, you know, I've heard references to Antifa, for example, uh, which it wouldn't surprise me if that was the case. But if you did it, you're responsible. And I want those people to be held responsible, whatever their political complexion. Right. Uh, I'm absolutely clear. And I don't get any sense of hesitation from Trump in saying the same thing, actually. Right. And without throwing everyone under the bus who was at the the main event that day, which was probably 99% of the crowd that didn't participate in any of those other activities. So uh, let's move on to the main item on our agenda, which is uh, natural associations of man. And this, I think, is a, a fitting conversation to have as uh, we're, we're transitioning to a new administration that I think will, and has already been clear about its intentions, to try to replace a lot of the natural associations of man mm. with uh, layers of bureaucracy, with federal government taking the a much greater role in just our everyday lives. Um, so where can we turn to reclaim the sort of sovereign power that we have over our own lives? in our own communities. Well, I'm going to say nation, family, and church, and that these can do jobs, uh, do certain things together far more effectively than uh, than the government can, certainly family and church, and the nation has a very specific role. Um, we're going to sing a song. There's a, I, I want, we're going to, Charlie and I are going to attempt to uh, sing for you. These are short hymns, don't worry. Short hymns from the uh, Eastern Rite, uh, and they're from the Feast of the Holy Cross, uh, which uh, was a feast to celebrate the finding of the of the cross in Jerusalem. Mm. 
Um, and it, listen to the words, and on the face of it, you, you think this might be jingoistic, and it absolutely isn't. I want to make this point because we're going to talk about this. So uh, we'll we'll begin now. So, oh Lord, save your people and bless your inheritance. Grant victory to our country over its enemies and preserve your community by the power of your cross. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. O Christ our God, who chose by your free volition to be elevated upon the holy cross. Grant your mercies to your new people who are called by your name. In your power gladden the hearts of our public authorities. Strengthen them in every good deed so that your true alliance may be for them a weapon of peace and a standard of victory. Okay, so what did we just hear? Um, First of all, that first hymn, which is called the Troparion of the Holy Cross, uh, based on the idea of a trope, a sort of uh, repeated statement. Uh, O Lord, save your people and bless your inheritance. Grant victory to our country over its enemies and preserve your community by the power of your cross. So, grant victory to our country. This is really establishing in the words of the liturgy, first of all, the idea of um, a nation, a country, uh, that has a, has civil authorities. And we heard reference that into the second hymn. Um, and uh, it's. I think this is very important, that um, for those who have been pushing for the dropping of international boundaries on both right and left, the idea that a, a national boundary is something that is artificial, uh, I believe is not so. I think the nation, which is bound together by a common culture and a, a set of ideas, um, is a natural association of man. We work better in that way. Um, also, we heard reference to... Uh, well, we didn't hear reference. If you had the, the rest of the prayers, we, we didn't give them reference to the Mother of God. And we heard reference also, of course, to the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit. These ideas uh, of father, son, and then the mother uh, accentuate in our minds the idea of the natural association of the family uh, and uh, really bolster this in our minds. Um, and then also the church. We, uh, we are singing as part of the church and asking God to bless the church. And so these are the natural associations of man. Now, why is this important? Well, one of the things that, uh, again, I noticed about uh, the uh, ideology, if I can call it this, the, 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 uh, what drove Trump's uh, policies were, the assert were the, actually the assertion of these ideas. We re referred last week to his reference to religious freedom um, and the Feast of Thomas Beckett. His foreign policy seems to be marked out by abandoning international, global organisation and pushing the idea that each nation should look out for itself. And when they do that, uh, in fact, you, you have a chance of attaining peace. Now, when this hymn says, grant victory to our country over its enemies, it's saying anything that tries to undermine the idea of a country, of a nation, is the enemy of that nation, whether it's from within or without. And we want victory, but the measure of that victory, it says in the second uh, hymn, is peace. That when we go for these natural associations, uh, the tendency is peace. Now, of course, uh, always 
Uh, there is the possibility of conflict. We live in an imperfect world. But what, what this says to me, that these are the ideals that we strive for, church, family, and nation. Um, and so the alliance with God of the nation, uh, each of us should st strive to follow God's will. That's what it means. becomes a weapon of peace and a standard of victory. Um, interesting to see the achievements of Trump in well, in the Middle East particularly, for example, going against the received wisdom. Also, what something something that was interesting to me was seeing how his economic policy uh, was not driven by the, the received wisdom, even amongst free marketeers, that uh, the nation is, a, is, a, is an artificial construct. He was saying, no, no, we need this bound together. We protect people within the nation in preference to others. And so um, what in, it was a surprise to me, for example, his policy in with regard to tariffs, for example, that it didn't bring the economy to its knees. It seemed to have the opposite of effect. Um, and what this says to me is that uh, we always have to take into account uh, in the, a market economy that you need this bond of trust and cooperation and that is really what drives us. You, you, the, the culture cannot be ignored. Uh, you, you need to have this as its basis. And the way that you promote this is by promoting these natural associations, these natural bonds of trust. And once those are firmly in place, that will permeate across the society. And so I remember hearing Trump, for example, talking about how he's putting America first, but he's saying... We, we expect other countries to put themselves first, and that is the way in which we will actually promote peace and uh, cooperation. This is in marked contrast to the hymn of, uh, or the chant rather, of no border, no wall, no USA at all. <laughs> no no yes. border, no wall, well, whatever it is. I uh, I think that our our, uh, our hymns here are, are vastly uh, more wise. Uh, but when you talk about tariffs, that's something that's kind of my bailiwick, um, because since I studied economics, yeah. oh, yes. and, and okay. so to go refer back, yeah. well, no, no, I, not, yeah. a, not a correction, but uh, we know that Milton Friedman would say that uh, unilateral free trade is the best policy for any nation to pursue, regardless of what other countries' trade policy might be. So if China wants to put tariffs on us, well, they might be harming some of our domestic mm. producers uh, and they're they're certainly harming their own citizens by uh, basically forcing them to pay more for uh, imported goods from, say, the United States or the country that, that they're imposing the tariffs on. But to add tariffs or quotas on uh, Chinese goods as a as a U.S. policy is only shooting our own citizens in the foot or. Uh, it, you know that that it's only harming us, and I think that the the Trump doctrine, if we were to lay it out at least on trade, was kind of a temporary tariff scheme in order to uphold a broader order of unilateral free trade. At least that was the argument that Stephen Moore, who was one of his economic advisors, made in a book called Trumponomics, and I found that reasonably convincing. I don't know. Uh, how effective it was specifically with respect to China. It might have needed to be a, a longer-term strategy than it ultimately will end, the, end up being. Uh, but just some, you know, the, I don't think that anyone else even remotely close to being electable as president besides Trump would have done something like, uh, you know, repeal TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which I think we can say with some confidence was a bad deal for uh, for for Americans, and so in that sense, I, I do think that uh, that you're right about this uh, putting the nation first, um, not as a uh, sort of dogmatic or not in every situation where it would uh, you know increase the. Uh, the, the costs of, of foreign goods for, for Americans. But I do think that we need to look beyond uh, citizenship as 
uh, using the kind of consumer mentality for, for citizenship. And if you think of everything in terms of economics, then it can warp your your perspective. Yes, and it comes down to this idea that ultimately we're looking for human happiness. And uh, once you factor that into the equation, I think this supports it. You know, people what prefer to be part of a nation, prefer to be part of a family. And prefer that, that to you know marginally cheaper plastic toys and, yes. and dog food from China. Yeah, I'm going to put something to you, and and you could I'd be interested to know your thoughts on this with regard again to the effects of those tariffs. That the arguments I heard about the how it's effectively a tax on our own people, it pushes the prices up, and we, we pay the price effectively of the the tariff. Um, that would be true if. Uh, people just continued to do business as they did before, but with the tariff. Uh, whereas there seemed to be an effect of people of, of different nations being... So if we think of China in particular, what happened is people moved that business to Vietnam, for example. And so different nations were in competition for each other. So when you have many nations, um, and it's not simply a bilateral, isolated bilateral arrangement. Um, what happened is that, uh, in the end, Vietnam steps up and they become the trading partner. And maybe in the long run, that, for the certain things, they'll be the long. In the long run, they will be the people whom we trade with, in preference to China, because we we feel we can't trust that China isn't going to do something, sell the, our ideas or renege on a deal or something like that. Um, and so the more countries you have, the more nations you have, the better. It's a, almost like competition between nations, between groupings of people benefits everybody because if China wants to win that business back, um, assuming it isn't using uh, force in the wrong way, uh, then uh, it, it, what it has to do is be a good dealer basically be a, a good agent in the market uh, any thoughts on that at all yeah this is right up my alley in the sense of you know i graduated from basic libertarianism to a perspective that takes one idea from libertarianism or that's popular among libertarians which is competition breeding excellence in the marketplace uh, and applies it to governance and says uh, the you know the problem with uh, you know the problem is that we have too few countries or too little competition. Maybe the barriers to uh, migrating are too high, or even uh, more radically, the barriers to starting a new country are too high. That if we had lots of even just a federated structure within the United States gives you better policy at the state level than you would have if you just passed one monolithic policy at the federal level, because people can vote with their feet and they mm -hmm. can move across state lines if they don't like what their state is doing. So uh, the concept of seasteading is born of this meta-libertarian idea of competition in government, that we need to create a startup sector for governments on the ocean, because that's the last territory on planet Earth that's not claimed by some existing government. And along with that idea is uh, this notion that when we ran out of frontier, basically when the West Coast of the United States was, uh, was, was colonized and, uh, and, and uh, developed, civilization ran out of that space, the, that safety valve for the, the crazy people like the pilgrims or the, uh, you know, the, the people that, that pioneered the American West they no longer had any place to go and try out their idea, uh, their vision for the good. And so we don't get that same sort of societal innovation. Mm. I, I, it's interesting you hearing, hearing you talk about the creation of new nations. Uh, I'm from the UK and uh, in a sense, there is the, a move to create new nations there. So Scotland is always pushing for independence. Um, and, my feeling on that is uh, that many people, because I, I'm English, you can hear that in my accent, I'm sure, uh, and people will assume that I'm against Scottish independence, that somehow I, I want the you know, greater UK. My feeling is that if Scotland feels that it has a, a, a national character, which is distinct from the English, and wants to go it alone, 
then they should be free to do so, actually, that you should encourage that national identity. Uh, with regard to Scotland, my belief is, however, that although the, the Scottish nationalist movement is strong, in the end, they don't really want to be, go independent. They turn, down, they turn it down as a vote. And uh, it does mean that they have to be prepared to act as a, an independent nation if they're going to do that. And the leadership of the Scottish Nationalist Party, as I see it, is, is views Scotland, and this is my characterisation of them, um, as, a, as a sort of client state of somebody else. So uh, if they're not getting handouts from England, effectively, which is what is happening now, they, the expenditure in Scotland is way beyond what it's producing as a nation. Uh, so they panicked. They, they would get money also from the EU as a poor area of the UK. Um, and they panicked when uh, on Brexit and tried to even investigate joining the EU hmm. separately. The EU very quickly said no because they realised that this would just be another Greece, a, a country which is just looking to receive money effectively from Germany. Um, and uh, I think that's a shame. I think if Scotland really looked to its heritage, a great a nation, very high level of education, a great tradition of entrepreneurial activity um, and a culture that promotes that, if you get past these socialist tendencies that exist in the, at the higher level of government at the moment, it could be like a Hong Kong or a Singapore in Europe. And could probably outstrip England <laughs> if it put its mind to it. And I think that the result of that would be both countries would benefit, actually. Um, but sadly, uh, most of the Scots are, wouldn't vote the way I would. If I had a vote, my brother and I actually were, always wanted to have a, a vote on Scottish independence as English people. We weren't given a chance mm. to. And we would have voted for Scottish independence. Uh, but for, unfortunately, nobody w would have listened to us. But uh, I just don't see it happening. For all the, the complaining in Scotland, I just don't see it happening. And it makes me wonder why more people in the United States, including the especially the like the more progressive areas, wouldn't welcome the idea of uh, a state secession like Texas, where that you know that kind of a movement. Uh, you know, why does why does California want to keep Texas in the union if they think that they're such a backwards state uh, or, or, you know, vice versa? Why, why don't the people of Texas uh, rally around a California state secession movement? I'm not sure that that would actually be in the best interest of the fabric of the United States. I think that we could still have a, a federated structure, a kind of secession light, which would basically just require states to govern themselves uh, within a, a constitutional framework, within some sort of a federal structure, but that the federal government would have uh, much uh, less to do and much less say over our lives. I think that it would mean a lot less division, a lot less anger, and every time we change who's in charge, you wouldn't have half the country feeling like they had suddenly been disenfranchised or that uh, that their lives were about to be taken over by people who they hate. Is that possible in the current structure? Some way of Texas, for example, uh, rejecting federal law that applies to everybody else? I'm assuming it isn't. But It would take a constitutional convention and, and okay. maybe some amendments that would revert the, the current constitution closer to the first draft, the Articles of Confederation, which ultimately fell apart because they might have gone a little too far in the direction of uh, weakening the federal government at the expense of the states where they basically, you know, didn't have a, a country at all. They couldn't tax, really. They couldn't tax the states. But I think that uh, a number of proposals have been suggested. There's a great book called American Secession by Frank Buckley, who's a, a law professor at George Mason University, and he lays out some options. And interestingly, Canada is one of his primary models for what a sensible federal structure looks like. They have the, the different provinces, all of which are basically self-governing, but then they also have a federal government that 
can can bring them all together under right. one maple leaf. Does he talk about Australia at all? I've I've, I've spoken to Australians who talk about the, the states there. There are just six of them, I think, or hmm. something like that. I don't recall a very strong sort of separate identity. Yeah I, yeah, I don't I don't remember, but but it does that your Scotland example I think brings up an important point, which is that the people of any area have to be grown up enough to actually govern themselves. Yes. When you have irresponsibility on the part of the population in general, then you get the the need for a, a stronger government, or at least you create the, the power vacuum that enables a, an authoritarian to step in and fill that vacuum. And I would say, coming back to our opening song <laughs> opening singing uh, that the the way you promote such a culture and such a, an, an attitude in the citizens is through religion family and uh, the right understanding of the nation as something that binds us together a, a, a right patriotism effect, effectively so we've talked a lot about the nation now let's move on to one of those other natural associations of man uh, should we go with the church or the family next? Let's let's say the family. Yeah. So uh, this is uh, one of those things that, uh, of course, is being attacked very strongly by the left, the natural identity of the family uh, and what we would call the nuclear family. Uh, but also, uh, again, it, it, there are all... There's, People focus, when I hear debates on the family, a lot on the uh, individual effect on children who are brought up in other situations. And I believe, you know, I'm happy to believe that it's always best to have a father and a mother in a family. Uh, but I'm just thinking of uh, situations I've seen personally. Uh, that's not always possible. With the best will in the world, there will be divorce, there will be conflict and sometimes it's better in a particular situation that there is a separation um, but uh, always with God's grace there is a the, the, for each person there is a possibility of um, being happy and joyful and contributing to society well and nobody is a is a totally a victim of their circumstances but as a broad rule uh, the more that a society is geared towards the promotion of cooperation in family environments and also the model that sets for, if you like, cooperation between families in communities, in neighbourhoods that can then incorporate those people for whom their own family might have been uh, ruptured in some way, which inevitably is going to happen. Uh, we want to Make sure that people who are in families in that situation feel part of the of the of a, a local community uh, as well. And I think the the role of families in setting that up is very is very important. Was that sort of a segue into from from family to uh, church, or or what else can we say about the role of family as a natural association of men? Um, well, I I don't. I don't think I had anything else to say other, other than to assert it and also to note just really perhaps a little bit more how uh, in under the Marxist ideology he saw the family as being the, the beginning of the whole sort of, you know, we used to, they talk of patriarchy. I mean, this is, this is something they want to bring down um, and that the, uh, the, the beginning of all of this, uh, for them, inequality and injustice in society is the is the family and so when you saw on the black lives matter website for example they they didn't make any direct re reference to marxism and we, we've seen videos of their founders saying they were marxist but uh, even if you put that aside they i think they've changed it now but they for a long time on their website they said they were against the nuclear family um and uh, they saw this as the, the, the unit that most profoundly affected the rest of the culture and established this sort of hierarchical setup. Now, as Christians, I would say we look to that and say that there is a harmonious relationship. You, you don't want 
complete equality. You want hierarchy, you want inequality, but everything's set up to work in cooperation and harmony. And then that is for the benefit of all. Everybody in their place benefits from this. And the family is fundamental to this. Um, And the Marxists realised this. They understood that. They decided they didn't want that sort of society and they understood the way to destroy it is is to destroy the conventional family. I think that there's a, a leveling tendency in Marxist ideology, in the the idea of a socialist utopia. You're supposed to have a kind of horizontal, uh, you know, no absence of hierarchy. Where in reality you you can't actually get rid of the hierarchy, and so you you end up with layers of bureaucracy and and the government sort of takes the role of patriarch and you know every every other rung on the the ladder uh, but where you're describing this vertical nesting of of authority and a kind of interdependence um, I think that the the Marxist vision is is much more flat and inevitably when you have that leveling tendency you also are leveling out, uh, any kind of natural excellence that there might be in the population. Um, and so this is kind of the, the positive side of inequality. Uh, you know, we, we don't like to see uh, the, the stark contrast between the, you know, the, the homeless and the, and the super rich, but uh, we do like to, to see a, a natural diversity in the population and we want people to be able to pursue their unique gifts well that's that's the point is every person is unique and so they're not simply a statistical blip um, as part of a sort of mathematical function which is the way that the state tends to treat uh, its people Uh, and uh, as you say the ideal may be equality but that isn't what what you see you you cannot into the vacuum fulfilling the role that ought to be done by these natural hierarchies you the alternative is not equality that's not what actually you get what you get is an inequality that is based upon government and government effectively stepping into these roles that the family and the church would occupy um, and they do that very badly i would say and this causes a lot of the misery that we see in association with the leftist policies Let's pivot to the third natural association of man on your list, which is the church. Right. So um, it is important, I think, for to for us to acknowledge that man is both uh, material and spiritual, and his spiritual needs uh, need to be uh, met as well as the material needs. So uh, the freedom of re- religion is imp- an important part of that. And so it's part of the freedom of idea of freedom of association, I would say. People can choose to be with others who share those religious views and to practice that religion. And that's a natural desire of man. And again, it builds a natural bond of trust that promotes uh, values. It depends on the religion. There are good ones and bad ones, I would say. As a Christian, I'm going to say the, the highest religion is the Christian faith. This is the one that really uh, promotes harmony more than any other and promotes these values that are going to allow a flourishing Um, but it is an alternative this can work at a local level and I'm thinking particularly here of the invigoration of parishes and neighborhoods Uh, it's one of the I would say I I go to St Elias uh, Melkite Church and which is in the South Bay Um, and they have a, it's maybe something we can talk about actually, how they organise themselves. It's very much recognising people's natural gifts, getting everybody to contribute to what's, uh, to, the, to the creation of a community. And our pastor, Father Sebastian, uh, refers to us as a family. Now, many churches will, will do this and work this out in their own way. Uh, but, uh, for example, he says that the, the optimal size of such a church is about 150 people, which would be smaller than most uh, church, most churches that you know envisage within a sort of Catholic parish or something like that. And he says that what should happen, excuse me, what should happen 
once you reach that size is that that the successful churches then send off missions they they generate priests they generate generate people who can then establish another church but they're coming from the successful parish the basic unit of the of the institution of the church is the parish a group of people getting together and worshiping together in common um, and uh, that consists of families and individuals and accommodates all very successfully and again it promotes certain values certain attitudes in the individuals who then cooperate with each other in a particular way but it's more than just efficiently transmitting personal values it's about man being fully man um, through this association of, of a sort of common worship uh, that is so important, I think, that then has a ripple effect on the structure of the society as a whole. We've talked a bit about spontaneous order and the kind of evolution of institutions, the, the, the natural evolution which takes place and, and includes government but is not synonymous with government. Um, Alexis de Tocqueville wrote a lot about the United States being unique in its uh, civil society or civil, you know, that, that sector, that kind of voluntary uh, association was particularly rich in, in what he observed of the United States. And I think the, the undercurrent of this whole conversation is that the, the idea of subsidiarity or nested authority at the, at the lowest level, you have the individual and then above that you have the family and then maybe the church is above that. And then finally the nation uh, at the at the top, and na one nation under God, that kind of thing. Uh, so it's all the, the the sort of vertical orientation, but but uh, each layer beneath it is nested organically. It's it's not necessarily something that you can just engineer a replacement for. Yes, I mean the the one thing that is clearly above all else in terms of sheer power, should we say, is the state, and that's why you want limited government because. They have the army in a sense. So, but if you look at family and church and and other than what you might call secondary types of association, which will just spring up naturally, whether it's a a sailing club or you know we, these things just develop. There are natural a pirate radio station. Yes, which we'll come to um, a a, uh, a network of free speech, for example, as you're trying to create. That what fuels these. Uh, as as things that support the a harmony rather than cause fracture, I think is is the existence of the family and the church as well. And rather than seeing as one above the other, it's as much that they they do different things. There are things that government simply should not be doing, uh, and church should. There are things that the family should be doing, and the other two shouldn't. Um, and. Uh, when when those are respected, I th just as it, it is with people, that, that we all have particular gifts, we can contribute things in a particular way, and we want each person to, uh, for the good of society, to be to be fulfilled, and to to fully contribute as best they're able to, and it's within these structures that actually they best contribute to the common good, to the good of the whole. I would say. So in the last few minutes here, I did you know, want to talk a little bit about the uh, concept of the free speech network, and I'm actually experimenting with a, an alternative name, which is uh, Pirate Radio, <laughs> and you, you actually told me a little bit of uh, the, the story of Pirate Radio in England with Radio Caroline that I didn't know all that much about. Can you kind of summarize uh, what you know about? Yes, okay. So... Uh, I was very young, I, and um, in the 60s, uh, you had the development of what you call pirate radio. And this, this, in the spirit of the 60s, of course, the, it wasn't about free speech in Britain. It was all about being able to pay, play pop music, which was the most important thing in the world at that time, it seemed. Um, so, And the, the reason that they developed was that the uh, broadcasting licenses were... But basically, you couldn't do it. You, you 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 had very strictly controlled radio, television. It was all government run, I think. I mean, there may have been some licensing of independence, 
uh, but very carefully regulated, very, uh, very difficult to set this up. Um, and you had some people in a boat anchored out in the sea beyond, I think it was the, na- the, the national limit was four miles at that time, um, broadcasting AM radio uh, to the nation. Britain's a small country. I, I don't know whether they had some booster stations or something, but I remember you used to listen to your tranny, you know, the transistor radio, this tiny little thing, and you'd sort of, uh, maybe because the signal was bouncing off the underside of a cloud or something, on, at night you might be able, where I lived, you might be able to get Radio Caroline. Um, and it was allowed to broadcast pop music. Um, and it's interesting that AM radio became the vehicle for talk radio, I think, in the US. I, I was hearing about... So it wasn't pirate, it was all licensed, but it was a way of being... It's it's The entry into the market is very cheap, and so people can set up and do it, and so that's that became the basis of it. And here we are now in in our boat, uh, Radio Caroline, so to speak, just exercising free speech. And I hope that people will come to trust this podcast. Uh, well, and it also has a the, the live component, so it's the you know the, the latest, uh, most up to date news that you can't get anywhere else, uh, covering things that are otherwise censored. So you know we've been reading the the latest statement from. Uh, President Trump uh, or advising his followers not to engage in any acts of vandalism or violence in the coming days. Uh, that's something that the fact that he's been silenced on Twitter means he can't get that message out. I think that it's a real problem. And now you have basically social media companies playing the role of the the radio broadcast, uh, whatever governing body was restricting the, the flow of of uh of information at that time you i think maybe a an analogy could be drawn there what do you think yes um i heard the someone say that in china you have a sort of state run media uh group, um network in america you have a media run state and but the t- but they're both uh to the degree that that's true they they're both very negative things um and i think that i i don't think it's we're quite in out you know in such trouble yet in the u.s there are people who are people can see through what's happening they're, they're looking at it um 75 million voted for trump despite the most incredible onslaught for four years they decided uh, you may not agree with their opinion but they, they look they they heard what was being said about him and decided to vote for him. So uh, they, they don't have quite the control they'd like to think they have. Um, but it's important that we find those little places to enter into the market. And uh, yes, the, so the end result actually in the UK was the opening up of the uh, the, the airwaves. I mean, Thatcher particularly was responsible for encouraging that. I think that's she might have been the death knell for Radio Caroline. It was, they no longer had to broadcast from a uh, from a boat ashore because you could just start up a radio station locally wherever you wanted. Yeah, and and it was you know years later that podcasting became the phenomena that it is today. Uh, this kind of vision for the free speech network or pirate radio, whatever we'll end up calling it, uh, is that we have a narrowing window it would seem to kind of build a parallel infrastructure that so that when these points of view are inevitably censored down the road right now we can still put this out on various podcast networks we're kind of below the radar and i think that that's another beauty of decentralization is that while it might be easy to take away the megaphone from uh president trump it's a lot harder to take it away from his 75 million supporters and so i think if we can kind of give people a sense of having a voice within even just their own network uh making it easier for people to start their own shows uh, even if it's just a limited run if you have something to say i want people to know that the free speech network has a a place for you and so they can contact me through the website which is uh do we have freespeech.com kind of posing the question do we we'll find out 
Well, we will. I, it's funny that, that uh, you, you say you want people to trust us. We're just saying what we want to talk about. We're talking about what we want to talk about. Um, and did, it, did I say that I want people to trust us? Uh, you did. Um, and the information. And, it, and it, as I was listening to you... No, I, well, I want them to know yeah. that, that we are a place that they can get the latest breaking information. What they do with that information, uh, the censored yeah. information, is, is up to them. Uh, uh, and, and whether they agree with our spin on it but well that, that that's the thing i think i hope people feel that they can trust that we're just all we're doing uh is just uh expressing what we like to talk about what we want to talk about amen without hindrance um i just want to bring up one thing in connection with that that people who think that uh it's being radical to for, for me for example to sing a hymn from the you know, it may not seem particularly radical. Some of the topics we cover, you know, architecture. Uh, I'm interested in art and culture, and I'm always talking about this. Um, but in a way, the, the, I, I don't know. Did you hear the story of the the lady who was at a, at a knitting website, and um, she? It was just a group that did knitting, and ultimately, even the sort of politically correct people came in and started to govern how they interacted with regard to their knitting. And all she wanted to do was talk about knitting and knitting patterns and everything had to be politically correct. And in the end, this drove her to, to you know, uh, up to that point. She hadn't really questioned the sort of standard liberal view of things. And, it and was now a, she's joined her local militia. <laughs> well, she's no. she's knitting in chain mail, yeah. Okay. But, uh, but, no. but the, the point is that... Uh, that these things can touch every aspect. And just to be free to talk about what you want to talk about without this worry that a slip of the tongue is going to get you to lose your job or something, that's what we want to be able to do. People, I believe that most people, for the most part, are well-intentioned and uh, if they're constantly on edge worrying about what they're going to say, that's that's going to cause a problem, and so free speech is speech that is engaged in freely, without any sense of uh, looking behind your back. Right, and my closing comment would just be that it's important to distinguish that kind of robust free speech culture from the more limited free speech protections of the Constitution, and I think that the latter bolster the former. You can't have a culture of free speech without some sort of legal protections. But when people say, oh, well, it's Twitter's right to censor, I would say perhaps. But is that really the kind of culture that we want to live in where a small number of, you know, uh, aristocrats or, or, you know, wealthy uh, tech CEOs have the power to say who gets to have this amplifier? And and of course, free speech is in the end, the law is trying to bolster an ideal. It's not; it doesn't define what it is. It can only really back up a general sense of what of a of, of a culture which is interested in free speech. And so, uh, the the question I would ask is, regardless of whether they're in in accord with the law or anything like that, is the effect they're having one of limiting or of encouraging free speech? Um, and then, now how? So, so then you need to consider a change. At the moment, it, they're, they're limiting it. I don't think there's any doubt. I mean, they're aggressively cutting out certain groups of people. Now, how you deal with that? I'd rather the free market thing that uh, just allows people to come in and do what we're doing and just speaking. Well, I hear the bumper music coming in now as we end this delightful hour talking about nation, church, and family, the natural associations of man. Uh, Stay tuned for more episodes of Grace and Danger on the Free Speech Network, and be sure to sign up for our mailing list to get announcements about new shows and new episodes. Until next time. Thank you, David. Pleasure. Great to talk to you, Charlie, and thank you.